Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome back to Unheard. So, how does a Catholic American professor, born in St. Louis, Missouri, end up working for the Prime Minister of Hungary, coordinating foreign policy? As Viktor Orban is due to meet former and perhaps future President Trump in Florida next week, I am delighted to be joined here in our London studio by Gladden Papen, a leader of the post-liberal movement in American conservatism that finds inspiration in Viktor Orban. So much so, in fact, that Gladden is now president of the Hungarian Institute of International Affairs, funded by the Orban administration, and he lives in Budapest. So we're going to try to understand why some American conservatives are so excited about Viktor Orban and what this might mean for a future Trump administration. Welcome, Gladden. Good to be here, Freddie. Let me just kick off with that broad question so you can introduce it. Why have you moved to Budapest and why do you like Viktor Orban? Well, I first visited Budapest at the end of 2020. It was right in the middle of the, the COVID pandemic. And uh, Trump had either just lost the election or was in the multi-month process of losing the election. And I think that was an important time for American conservatives. And they began at that point to open up a little bit uh, since, well, when Trump was in power, he was the exclusive focus. But after he was out of power, well, it looks like actually over there in Europe, there are a couple of conservative governmental uh, structures that are working. The Polish government was a conservative government at that time. Uh, and Hungary was and still is. So I was very interested in trying to figure out what makes those governments tick. What are they What are they doing? What is their governing vision? And I found when I went over there that Hungary had a very particular governing vision, trying to, to promote conservative values and to make uh, the, the already conservative uh, Hungarian society be able to survive and thrive. So in a sense, it's you're looking for inspiration. And these, you hope, are ideas that can be transported back to the US. Is that fair? Well, I think that it's important to have that kind of transatlantic exchange among conservatives. And, you know, whenever we're looking at a conservative government that has managed to last for a long time, in spite of all the pressure that's been put upon it, maybe there's something there that can be learned from. And for me, the problem that American conservatives have always had is that it's not clearly a governing program. So the the message coming out of the American right is often more of an anti-government one. So it's how do we reduce our taxes, uh, reduce red tape, get government out of the way of our lives. And absolutely, there are elements of the, the American system that the right was pushing against where that mindset was important. But what what can we do to take the next step? What can we do? What is our advertisement when conservatives are in power? What are they delivering from people? And how are they doing it in a conservative way that promotes conservative values? Mm. And I think that's something where we can actually learn from Hungary. So that is the key phrase, isn't it? Because we've sort of fallen already into the heart of the matter, I feel like. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Promote conservative values. That's the the argument, isn't it? That's the distinction between so-called post-liberal conservatives such as yourself and, I guess, Victor Orban. He, you know, he, I think he described himself as illiberal on at least one occasion and what you would see as mainstream conservatives. Let's just try to elucidate mm -hmm. what that distinction really is for our viewers and listeners. So a, a mainstream conservative, you would say, is still basically a liberal 
in that they believe in small government and that the big questions of life should be government should stay out of to a certain degree. Whilst do you think the government should have a, a larger role actually promoting a particular vision of the good life? Is that a fair summary? Or I think it's heading in the right direction. I mean, I would say something like it's 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 about how we look at political society itself. Like what is what is the thing that political society is aiming at? And that includes all of society, includes governments as well. Can we say that, for example, uh, we're trying to promote a family-friendly society? If that's our goal, what are the what are the methods through which we can do that? So the government then chooses a, a vision of the good life, or it, it has to have a coherent project of what the good virtues should be in society, and then use the instruments of the state to try and bring that about. A, a more activist government with a more clearer kind of vision. Is that roughly where we're headed? If you phrase it as like a government should pick what values it wants and it should pursue them, that's somehow not not quite capturing uh, the what I'm trying to suggest, which is that there are values that are essential parts of human society. And so it's not about you know, well, we should live in a world where governments arbitrarily pick values and pursue them. These are essential things. We all know, for example, that having strong and robust family life is an important part of continuing any society, having a strong national identity is, um, and many other things like that. So for me, you know, it's not just about, well, governments should pick values and implement them or something like that. You know, these are really of the the, the essence of human society and the the, the essence of a of the fabric of a, of a political society. But there will so, be people who disagree with them, right? Even uh, in Hungary, dare I say it. For, uh, absolutely. I think so. Yes, yes, so yes. Those, so they're not quite universal in that some people think that they are misguided nationalism, for example. A lot of people think that is a, a dangerous idea and should be downplayed, if anything. Um, and I suppose a lot of people would reject the idea that government should be involved in how people form families or promotion of marriage or decisions like that, which I guess a lot of probably a majority, at least in this country, would think should be more personal decisions that the government has no involvement in. Of course, people can disagree. And there are different countries and different mindsets um, and different ways of government. So for me, the, the Hungarian approach is less focused on the the I or the, the the individual alone, but it is a kind of common project of the of the Hungarian nation. Not well, every it's a common nation project of that those way. people who vote for Viktor Orban. I guess it's not the common project of the people who don't. Actually, there's a constitution, and the constitution is articulated as an expression uh, of what the Hungarian nation seeks to do, and it's in the constitution that. Um, that we're trying to protect the family. So actually, when it comes to Hungary, the issue of the family is actually not a political issue. It's a fundamental part of the constitution. So the Hungarian people, through their constitutional process, you know, selected and, and decided to enshrine in the constitution the nature of the family and the idea of support for it. Of course, beyond that, how that's done can be the result of the democratic process. Just to conclude on this slightly more, you know, 30,000 foot philosophical section, how would you summarize your beef with liberalism? What is it that you think liberalism in the technical classical sense gets wrong? Well, I think fundamentally it's looking at the, the essence of human society in the wrong way. Um, you know, I'm an Aristotelian, so I think that human beings act for a particular reason and have a particular aim when they do so. And when they form political societies, inevitably, they start to pursue something as a definite end. So I think what we've seen in liberalism is that it, 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 started, it tried to create a society where we wouldn't talk about the end purpose or goal, that we would give everyone equal freedoms to pursue their own vision of, own vision of the good. And, and that would lead to some people engaging in sort of experiments in liberalism, liberal lifestyles and other people being more traditional. And the fact is that, the, that this, is, this also affects the way that people think about the goal or purpose. 
people have come to think of the of the you know liberal individualist person as the goal they're trying to create. It is actually a substantive goal. We're trying to create the person who is you know unbound from their community, freed from their traditions, you know, able to invent everything for themselves. And this is this is a substantive goal, actually. But we're not able to talk about it clearly. We're not able to 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 to, to discuss whether that's the type of person, the type of society that we want to promote. So in some sense, like all societies are Aristotelian in the sense, I'm sorry to speak at the 30,000 foot level, but all societies are pursuing some substantive good. And today I think that we can see that the that there is a, a vision of the substantive, like ever more liberal society, ever more liberal person, ever more freed from traditions, ever ever more you know, unbound by those uh, restrictions of nature and 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 community, enabled by technology to, you know, uh, achieve ever more, um, you know, ever more freedom or something like that. And I th- I think that that, so that there is something has, substantive there. So while it might purport to not have a ideology or a vision of the good life, actually, what you say is is it does in effect, and it just doesn't spell it out. Yeah, I mean, I think that this, at least in the U.S., I know that Trump is a kind of particular phenomenon. But for me, this really became clear after 2016. You know, even and I mean, I come from the university environment in the universities in the U.S. before 2016. Well, people can have political disagreements, but you know, conservatives will have to keep a little bit more quiet or something like that. After 2016, you know, unless you are positively affirming the uh, political viewpoint of the liberal left. Then you're excluded. Is it not possible, though, Gladden, to agree with some of what you've said, to observe that the last decades and maybe in particular the last few years of liberal societies have become somewhat unhinged? Maybe they've become, they've overreached, and maybe a correction is required within liberalism to, re, you know, to, to readjust the center point, to reassert some more common values and to kind of restrain the excesses of sort of unmoored individualism without throwing the baby out with the bathwater and saying, we're now going to kick out the whole liberal ideal because that's been going for centuries. And as I understand it, at its heart, the idea is that we have a negotiated settlement in our societies between people who may fundamentally disagree about aspects of what the purpose of life is, and yet we can still live in peace and in harmony and without requiring whoever happens to control the government to exert their vision of of the life on everyone else. I mean, that's been enormously successful ever since, you know, you could say since the glorious revolution here in the UK, you know, it's it's been a wonderful gift to humanity, liberalism. It's allowed huge increases in innovation and wealth and human flourishing, why would you want to throw it out? Should we not just be correcting its most recent excesses? One thing I would say is that I think that um, as liberalism became triumphant, there are many good things that are included within it that also have existed outside of it or, or that are part of other political systems. So for example, you know, you'll often hear liberal historians referring to things like the uh, the right to confront one's accusers and these different parts of the of the um that have been part of the liberal legal tradition. They'll claim that those exclusively came from liberalism. One thing that Adrian Vermeule has done and some of the others who are part of the these common good legal uh, common good constitutionalism projects have uncovered is that these things existed outside of liberalism. They came from earlier in medieval society. They came from the Christian tradition, from the Roman law tradition. And so where I'm going with this is, you know, the alternative to liberal democracy isn't authoritarianism. We don't need to live in this kind of bipolar uh, analytical framework, which was very common not only in American and Western universities, but in decision-making circles, that they're basically two alternatives. There's either liberal democracy, which includes all the things we like, or some horrible alternative, which is which we'll call authoritarianism. What about Christian democracy? There is, some, there is another alternative tradition um, in Europe that has 
all of many of the the same features of modern life that we've come to expect, like preservation of personal freedoms and things like that, but which is oriented around and still based on uh, some more solid ground. There is a tradition called Christian democracy, which is a modern political tradition, but and would would Hungary um, represents it? Is that the argument? I, I mean, I, yes, it's clearly part of the Christian democratic tradition. Um, I mean, Hungary is a modern uh, functioning democracy with all the ordinary freedoms that one finds, but there's a solid basis for them. So, you know, one thing that struck me when I came to Hungary um, compared to life in the U.S. is that, well, of course, there's, um, you know, there's freedom, there's different lifestyles, whatever, but there's still a norm. Like the norm is the is the traditional family well, let's just start talking about some specifics in Hungary then, because this is the argument, isn't it? We, we have this experiment or this real world example. How well is it working? You talk about personal freedoms being preserved in Hungary. Gay people, for example, feel intimidated increasingly by the administration in Hungary, probably precisely for the reasons you've given, that it is prepared to stand behind what it sees as the norm and proactively assert its virtue. So if you are outside that, you will start to feel intimidated and excluded. What is your answer to that? What is your defense of personal freedom for gay people in Hungary? Well, again, every society has a norm at some point. And even liberal societies have been going more and more in that direction. So I would say in the US, you know, if you're a if you're a traditional Catholic family uh, that's trying to raise your your family in a traditional manner, have lots of children, um, you know, keep to your religious traditions, you'll find a lot of headwinds in normal society, headwinds in the primary schools, secondary schools, colleges, the woke educational system has become more and more aggressive. Um, it's it, it's insinuated itself into corporate life. Basically, you know, you can live a kind of alternative, conservative, traditional lifestyle in the U.S., but as you start to go through elite institutions and into normal professional life, you'll start to encounter the bottlenecks where the liberal enforcement happens. But that is so that's, illiberal, Gladden. I would say, I would, you know, if, if that's true, and I don't disagree with it, that's not right. But then those... It should the reverse should not be enforced either. Why are you not arguing for a, a more neutral government space that allows both conservative Catholics and you know left wing gays in towns or cities to both feel like they are not judged, not excluded? They don't face headwinds. They can live their life. People want to, as I said, from the Aristotelian standpoint, it's natural for political communities to define their norms. And to and to support them. So ultimately, there is no completely neutral liberal society where everyone can just do as you describe. So I think I think that the the problem with liberalism is that it can't sustain that. There's no there's no way to sustain that kind of society. There is some sort of vision is going is is going to prevail. And from my standpoint, there's nothing uh, you know tyrannical about the 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 traditional vision of human life. There is, we all know that there is no functioning human society uh, without a strong basis in the traditional family. And so it's normal for that to be defined and supported. Why is it that when politicians and governments start talking about family values and explicitly go into that kind of um, formative moral terrain, there are always sexual scandals inside that government that show a very different form of lifestyle. In the Hungarian example we had a few years ago, there was a Hungarian MEP, a member of uh, Orban's party, who was then um, had to leave some kind of gay orgy in Brussels when he was out in the uh, European Union. We then had, most recently, the president has had to step down over a scandal to do with exonerating someone who was exposing a paedophile ring. And that has caused a huge scandal inside Hungary. And again, I don't know the details of it. I'm not expecting you to go into the details of that. But the broader point 
is certainly true, which is that conservative politicians who preach family values, all too often they're shown not to be living by them. What do you say to that? Well, I mean, I'm not sure that that's actually true as a, like, I'm not sure that there's a cause and effect there. To me, societies constituted out of human beings who are frail and who make mistakes, both in their personal lives and in their decision-making. And that's going to be an inevitable part of any political society. So there's not going to be a scandal-free society, least of all, say, the Catholic Church, which is even more explicitly founded on you know, a traditional notion of family values, morality. You know, even that institution has human members, which you know, made catastrophic errors in many ways in recent decades. But the question is, how does a political society respond to that? I think overall what we would see in the, in the case of Hungary is that there's quite a rapid response to political scandals. I don't know, my feeling this is kind of a, this may be a little bit apples and oranges, but my feeling when I look at the, the American political elite is that there's never any accountability for bad decision making. It may not be that the one causes the other, but it shows the danger of having a explicitly moralistic government project populated by most likely very flawed human beings who probably aren't living up to those high virtues. I mean, that, I think, is more the point, that these kind of scandals show the risk, don't they, of having a government that strays into the territory that we in Western liberal democracies would normally associate with the church, which is a kind of moral didacticism. Do we really want politicians to be preaching to us when we, you know, we, we don't think they're moral arbiters. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. I mean, I don't see a moral didacticism in the Hungarian governmental approach, actually. So I think, I mean, this... this, this, this that's what this, you've just been this, telling me about. The, the... No, I think this is, this, this is how you see it, perhaps. But again, the, the, the post-liberal viewpoint is that every government is in favor of something. So, like, w when, you, when you were just articulating that, I was thinking, like, okay, well, a government supports free trade. That's a substantive goal. And, you know, maybe members of the, the liberal internationalist government that's supporting free trade will you know, make a mistake in their application of the ideas and there will be some scandal that results. Like, to me, that's exactly the same as there being a, a scandal around the goal of any government. Of course, that's pretty natural and it happens. I don't think that there's something unique or that, that one can differentiate here. In the U.S. a couple of years ago, 
the Biden administration proposed that there be a suspension on student loan repayments. This was, I think it originated during COVID or something like that, but a suspension on student loan repayments. And there was a political battle about this. I think the Republicans' response was something like, why should we spoil these college students who maybe they took on too much debt, they should have worked harder, you know, this is a a bad use of the state. So there's like one kind of political way of thinking there. In the Hungarian case, there is a benefit tied uh, to the remission of student loan debt for young women who have children. And the the idea behind this is, well, if you're a young person and you want to have a child, you're probably... uh, you know, you make some financial considerations. If you're heavily burdened by debt, you won't choose to do that. So there is a suspension of the student loan repayment in the case of a, of a Hungarian woman who's graduated from university. She has her child. Her student loan payment is suspended for three years. If she has a second child, the remaining debt is cut in half. Right, she has so a third the, child, the hung, it's eliminated. The young Hungarian woman who does not have a child is still paying her student loan repayments. Well, friends of hers who have had a child are not, and she may well feel like there is a moral didacticism coming from the government because they are literally paying her friends to make certain family choices, and she feels perhaps that she's penalised for not making them. I find it a little bit strange to, to call the promotion of family formation didacticism. Like, people want to have families. They want to get married. Like it's a part, it's a it's a part of human nature, and in the, in the U.S., for example, people are burdened by excessively high levels of student debt. So why not help them in that case? And so, if the desire to get married and have children is fundamental to human nature, would the Orban government's protection and promotion of that extend to gay people who would want to get married and form families? Well, again, in the Hungarian constitution marriage is defined as between a man and a woman. So there is a civil union uh, arrangement available for same-sex couples where you know, they can avail themselves of some standard legal protections and you know make inheritance, inheritances and things like that. But the definition of the family is preserved in the Constitution as being between a man and a woman. The father is a man, the mother is a woman, and furthermore, in the Hungarian Constitution, it's noted that every child has a right to be raised according to their biological sex at birth. So the, the, we're so doing not quite it, we're, all of it's not quite human nature. Then it's not quite all of humanity that is brought into this. It's particular. It's a particular vision as encapsulated by the constitution and promoted by the government. And if you fall outside that, you're not protected in the same way. Well, marriage according to nature is between a man and a woman. So this is, and then until a few, until a few years ago, this wasn't really debated. Um, so, and it's and it's clear that by orienting society, keeping society oriented in this direction, we put it in the best possible situation to continue. A lot of people criticize Hungary for what they would consider attacks on the institutions of a liberal democracy. This is the thing you hear most commonly within the European Union. That is the idea that the Orban government has over its time been making an assertive effort directed at the judiciary, at the press, at the academy, at universities, to politicise them in some way or to populate them with um, like-minded friends of the administration, and in some cases actually take direct control of them, which itself is moving away from a free society where where the democratically elected government can face proper scrutiny. What What's your response to that? When I think of a, a kind of frozen media environment where conservative voices are systematically excluded from public spaces, where, you know, where open discussion of, of, uh, of, of everyday politics is becoming more and more difficult, I tend to think of the United States. You know, most elite newspapers have only one opinion that's exhibited within them, and it basically doesn't change. Like the entire American elite newspaper and media system more or less moves as a unit uh, and expresses very little disagreement. And those who do disagree, like Tucker Carlson, for example, are eventually squeezed out. So I always I always find the discussion a little bit strange and surreal. In the case of Hungary, there's a very particular 
sequence of events in the post-communist era that define what Hungary has chosen to do over the last 14 years. Basically, what happened in the 1990s in a lot of post-communist Central and Eastern European states is that a lot of the state assets were auctioned off to Western buyers. So this was particularly the case in the media, for example. This is not only the case in Hungary, but in a lot of other Central and Eastern European countries as well. So I think when the Fidesz government came to power in 2010, something like 80% of the media was owned by German companies. And when I try to talk about this with my American friends, I point out, like, you know, can you put yourself in the mindset where 80% of the American media is owned by foreign governments, like, or or by, by by members of foreign countries? It would be a bit it would be a bit strange. Um, so what's happened in Hungary in the last few years is just that there's been a beginning of a rebalancing. So there's now a, a, a stronger uh, Hungarian-owned media where Hungarian people can express themselves through is companies it, that... And government-owned in some cases or government-supported. I mean, there's a, there's a wide variety of different media in Hungary and there are pro-government, anti-government media and media channels. That's pretty common in most Central and Eastern European countries. And again, because of the character of the of the post-Soviet societies, that's kind of how the media in those countries work. Is it the strategy of the Orban government, as he was talking about at CPAC a couple of years ago, to explicitly fill the judiciary, the media, and the universities, those kind of sometimes thought of as neutral, one would in theory hope that they might be institutions within a democracy that are there to hold the government to account, to explicitly fill them with more friendly people so that his vision can be better enacted. Is that the strategy? Because that feels like that's what he was saying two years ago at CPAC, and it feels like there are lots of people in the US who have taken inspiration from that and are trying to do the same in the US. I would separate out the judiciary from the rest of this, as I as I think that that's a that's a particular topic. But if we can take things that are funded by um, and organized by the state, such as state funded educational institutions in the U.S., it's become obvious that Republican states are not exercising control over the state funded universities. Why not? These are not neutral institutions at all. They're not just independent organizations that are holding the government to account. In the U.S., the university system has become a kind of weapon of the liberal left. And why are state governments in the U.S. pouring money into it with no accountability to to the democratic sentiment, to the sentiment of the people? So they've become – these institutions are not uh, reflecting democracy and holding the government to account. Quite the opposite. They're unaccountable institutions now. They've become unaccountable institutions, educational institutions are what I'm talking about. And so I think we've seen uh, like the beginnings of a correction in the other direction in the U.S. Governor DeSantis in Florida has begun to exercise tighter control over the universities uh, to eliminate the you know diversity, equity, and inclusion programs and things like this that are emerging not from you know the 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 will of the people or the democratic sentiment but basically from privately funded left-wing organizations like Soros-funded organizations, et cetera. Those institutions in the U.S. And, and, in, and in Europe changed not because the people became more left-liberal and, you know, the educational institutions reflected them. They were basically hijacked by, like, by, by, uh, by, liberal, by liberal people, institutions, funding, et cetera. So the and solution they don't is to hijack it. them back from conservatives? The solution is to have government reflect what people actually want and for that to be reflected in the institutions the government shapes, which includes... What people actually want is conservative values. They do in Florida and Texas, but of course I'm not telling the people of New York what to do. I mean, it's, impo- it's, important, for this to, it's important for this to have a democratic basis and it's going to be different in different countries. So this is not like, a, you know, this is not the articulation of a of a plan that should be should be forced or something like that. Rather, you know, if if as a, as a conservative, I believe that conservative values are natural to people. That by by instinct and by nature, people want them and and people will support them. So, are you not, I guess, worried about freedom as a value, and in fact, a conservative value being sidelined or sacrificed in this new? approach that you are championing. 
because people like Roger Scruton, a hero of many people in your movement, in fact, the Roger Scruton cafes are thriving in Budapest, I believe, he himself was was a devout proponent of a free society as, as opposed to the Soviet bloc. Um, and the worry I think that some people will have is that, for example, knowing that the judiciary will be unconnected to the political government is an essential part of a free society. Knowing that a free press exists and is not lent on or sponsored by the person who is politically in charge, knowing that even if they might be of a particular mindset, left or right, universities are not tied to the state. These are quite fundamental aspects of living in a free society that I think people like Roger Scruton and conservatives of his ilk would really defend. And I, my, my challenge to you is, is that value, freedom, not being sidelined here? What is a free society in this, in this understanding? And please tell me exactly where is it found in the West today, according to the, to the, to the vision that you have in mind I think in the, when we come to Hungary, freedom means not being dominated by outside powers. So again, from the standpoint of the media, it doesn't make sense for the Hungarian media to be mostly controlled by a foreign country when they come to power in 2010. Probably not. That's a type, that's a type of freedom or a type of lack of freedom. The same thing, by the way, was the case in Poland, where most of the regional newspapers, until the law and justice government made some changes, uh, were owned by Foreign, company, foreign companies as well. Actually, we've seen a strange evolution of liberalism, I think, where it's become much more assertive. And so I think and part of the point that I'm making is that the alternatives that you're suggesting or the, 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 the alternatives through which you're analyzing the world, I think don't really map onto it anymore. So if we look at the, the new Polish government uh, under Donald Tusk, they have been more aggressive and more assertive with the media than the supposedly authoritarian conservative Not law justice government. Where is liberalism? You know, it's evolved. Every, like it's natural for um, for governments to be more assertive and to carry out a view. And the, and my point is, the liberal view has become very, very substantive. A traditional conservative family is not free according to the understanding of liberalism. You're only free if you demonstrate it, if you prove it, if you live a liberal lifestyle. You know, this and this became the vision in the 1990s. Like we're going to have the jet set, you know, international elite who hop around the world. Borders matter less and less. Where things are made doesn't matter. Like all all these things became not simply elements of neutrality, but like something that had to be pursued. So I think it is I think it is important to say, and this is why I was talking about Christian democracy, that the alternatives are not uh, the the liberal society as you envision it. And, you know, an authoritarian society, on the other hand, where freedoms are oppressed and things like that, it is very important to follow constitutional and legal norms. Those can be invested with a Christian and conservative understanding of where they come from and what they serve. Let's talk about foreign policy, because that is actually what your institute focuses on. And we're going to run out of time otherwise. Where should Hungary sit? Uh, in relation to the Russia-NATO standoff that is currently happening in Ukraine. It feels like at the start, Orban was very full-throated in his wish to support Ukraine in repelling the Russian invasion. Over the past two years, that has softened somewhat. Uh, where does he stand now? Where should Hungary sit? Well, uh, let's be clear, there's not a Russia-NATO standoff. Russia has invaded Ukraine, and that's our neighboring country. So the immediate Hungarian reaction was to denounce the invasion as illegal, as a violation of international law, as a violation of Ukraine's territorial integrity. But for a number of other reasons, Hungary didn't want to be involved militarily or directly in spite of a lot of international expectation that Hungary, having closed its doors to migration in 2015, would do the same to refugees, actually more than a million, something like a million and a half Ukrainian refugees were welcomed into Hungary in the days after the invasion. 
So this was a disruption of the peace of the neighborhood. This is something that no one in Hungary wanted. And I'd have to look at exactly what the opinion polls are in Hungary. But Vladimir Putin and Zelensky are neither of them popular with the ordinary Hungarian people. Hungary wants to stay out of the conflict because it sees nothing that can be gained through its involvement. The theory of the war from the Western side was, this is a conflict where all the West needs to do is supply arms and supply technology, and Ukraine will be able to take care of the rest and win. I would hope that that is the case. I would have hoped that that was the case. But I was skeptical myself that that would work. And I worried at the beginning that what the West was committing itself to was a stepwise series of interventions, none of which would be sufficient on their own. Myself, just speaking for myself, I'm a kind of all or nothing guy when it comes to war. Like the US hasn't declared war in a long time. Throughout most of my life, it's been little intervention here, a little intervention there, increasing escalation. And I feared that the same thing would happen in Ukraine and that the result would be the same as it has been in other US interventions. So I think Hungary's caution, although it was very unpopular at the time and received a lot of criticism, Hungary was thought to be kind of uh, pouring cold water on a good effort. Well, we're a realist country. We call things how we see it. We were very nervous that things would end or start to go in the direction that they now have. And unfortunately, I think we were proven right. What outcome does the Hungarian government now want to see? What is the realistic outcome, which I guess whether they want it or not, they now want to accept in Ukraine? Well, the position actually hasn't changed since the beginning, which is that we have nothing else to call for other than an immediate ceasefire. So that was our opinion on day one of the war or day two. And it's our opinion today that as that as quickly as we can come to some sort of negotiating table, as painful as that may be, as difficult as it may be, that is the only solution because it's evident that there is not going to be a solution on the battlefield. Maybe there could have been in some alternative world if it if if the West had wanted to escalate things toward World War III or something like that and have a full-scale invasion on behalf of Ukraine. I don't know. But from our standpoint, and analyzing the likely scenarios, the will of the West, the situation, we concluded at the beginning that a ceasefire was necessary. And I have nothing else to offer myself, not being a, a you know an, an analyst of all the possible scenarios that it could lead to other than that. Um, and I think that I think that that's becoming more and more widely recognized. What do you think will now happen? I mean, if 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 a ceasefire is the likely sort of medium term endpoint, it then becomes what just like a frozen conflict, no formal change of borders, but in effect, Eastern Ukraine continues to be part of Russia, and that's the way it stays for a number of years until anyone cares to reopen it? I mean, it seems so. But again, I think one won't know until it actually, some negotiation or discussion actually begins. So for myself, I would prefer not to speculate. There is a larger global issue here. You know, after Immediately after the invasion of Ukraine, the response from the West was to begin a process of decoupling from Russia, from more broadly decoupling from the East. But it occurred to me then that that um, that the that the mindset that the West had in the 1990s and early 2000s, where spreading Western commerce all over the world, spreading Western brands all over the world, would eventually lead to liberal democracy taking hold elsewhere. It seemed that after the beginning of the Russian invasion, that expectation and that mindset is over. No one in the West seems to have this confidence anymore that they can transform the world into a, into, into a realm for liberal democracy. Do you welcome that shift? Do you think that is better for the world and better for Hungary? Well, it's important that we calculate, that each power calculate its decisions on the international stage with the correct understanding of what's happening. So we could say that whether we like it or not, the expectations that the West formed in the 90s and early 2000s we're wrong. And so we need to somehow update them and decide uh, what we should do accordingly. 
So I don't. I, I think it's not really a matter of like what my ideal vision of the globe should look like. But it's important. Well, everyone but everyone has important a normative to, idea. Yes, yes, yes. Of what we're headed towards, right? Yes, but there's also a political scale on which things naturally operate, which isn't global but national. Well, I mean, it's a it's a question that we haven't really reckoned with in the West. It just sort of happened overnight, and I think it is connected to this larger like crisis of liberalism that we've been talking about. And for me, again, it's just that it that it happened rapidly, and no one discussed it. You know, we thought of the internet as something that was going to bring the whole world together, and then on day two of the conflict, well, we need to separate off the Western internet from the Russian one and the Chinese one, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that you know the 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 maturation that has to happen here in the West is that um, you know there are many good things that have come, as we discussed earlier, and I don't deny uh, that are part of the liberal democratic regimes, but clearly like prosperity is being built by non-democratic regimes. I'm not happy about that. I'm in favor of democracy. But we have to recognize that it's happening and we have to calculate accordingly. And at this point, the discussion in the West and the discussion in Europe is so frozen, like it's hard to even to talk about that. Mm-hmm. So before we even come to conclusions about you know, how the West should be navigating a new multipolar world or whatever, we're having a hard time even discussing what it is. I don't mean you and me, but in general in the West. And what role do you think Hungary has to play in this new world order, if we're allowed to use that phrase? Because it is kind of confusing to observe Orban's shifting stances from the outside. You know, he was very full-throated in the defense of Ukraine, has subsequently become less so. He was opposed to Sweden joining NATO he is now in favor of it. Well, the Hungarian parliament was not ready to ratify the accession. So the position of the government was in favor of the accession. But many people felt that there wasn't a good relationship between Sweden and Hungary, and that before entering a defensive alliance together, where we're each committing to send soldiers to the other's country in the case of, a, of, a, you know, of, an, of an invasion of a NATO member, before we make that commitment, Let's make sure that we get along and resolve the, the, the issues that are in the air between the two countries. And in the case of Sweden and Hungary, there were some issues between the two countries. There wasn't a strong relationship. Sweden had been party to the rule of law procedures against Hungary and had put pressure on it for its conservative stances. So it was important to, to Hungary that that situation be resolved, which it has been. The, the Swedish prime minister visited Everyone is happy. The Hungarian parliament ratified it, and it took a while. So I think, and I think, often people think that the prime minister's position has changed over time on on an issue like this. And I don't think it's changed on Ukraine, by the way. Um, but actually, what what I'm finding in European discourse is that no discussion is allowed of a certain topic. Hungary has a discussion that it wants to see happen. And it takes like a year or a year and a half for the discussion to be opened. What you've described is really Orban and the government pretty much using their role within the European Union, within NATO, to make sure that people pay attention to them, which I think is one way of characterizing it and makes makes sense. Do you think Hungary looks to have a, 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 a role that faces both ways in terms of the West and these new poles of influence such as China and Russia? Do you think there is a special place for Hungary in that discussion? The world is going in a multipolar direction. That's defining what that means is another discussion, but it's clearly not the unipolar American hegemonic role of the 1990s. And so basically we want to see the poles get along. No, we don't want there to be a world war. We don't want there to be a violent conflict between the US and China. And my fear what I see happening since the beginning of the war is that we're moving back in the direction of block formation, that there are many different multipolar worlds that we can have, but one in which everything is, everything in the West goes exclusively through the new local imperial capital, Washington or New York or Brussels. Everything goes through there. And in the, and in the East, everything goes through Beijing or whatever, if we have a divided multipolar world, it's going to be a much more conflict-prone world. It's going to be a much poorer world 
because we have a very interlinked global economy. So what's the alternative then? Well, I think there are many different types of international organization, and the goal should be to prevent them from congealing into blocks. Maybe I'm speaking in too abstract a manner, but Hungary is a member of the European Union. That's a certain type of organization. Hungary is a member of NATO. And will remain. That, yes, and, and, and a member of NATO, that's a certain type of organization. And if we look around the world, this is this membership in different types of organizations is something that a lot of different powers are doing because it seems to be the 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 direction that things are going so um, we Hungary has an eastern opening policy we're a m- observer member for example of the organization of Turkic states so we have a close historical connection to tie to and participation in the Turkic world that's not in conflict with the other forms of membership final question for you glad and I've got to let you go in a moment You've moved to Budapest, you've moved your family there, you've been using the first person plural uh, to describe Hungarians during this interview. Do you think you're going to stay in Hungary now? Is that you done? Or do you think you're going to head off back to the US? I try not to look too far into the future because if I had looked looked into the future a few years ago, I probably wouldn't have imagined that I would be living in Hungary now. So it's best not to look uh, too far ahead but absolutely, Hungary will remain a, a, a serious and permanent commitment. Gladden Pappen, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Freddie. That was Gladden Pappen, a living, breathing example of the part of the American right, American conservatives, who are so interested in and enthused by Viktor Orban and the government in Hungary that in his case, he's actually moved there and by the sounds of it, isn't coming back anytime soon. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to Gladden and see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.